right, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it on your app, or maybe you have a Bible in print. Make a beeline to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, that'll be our text uh, this morning. Now, this is probably one of the top three, I would say, most famous Bible stories ever, right? And so, even if you're here, maybe you're watching online, you're not a Christian, maybe you've never been to church, maybe you've never even cracked open a Bible in your life, I would almost guarantee you, you know this story, right? It is Daniel and the lion's den, right? Now, if you're like me, you grew up in the church world, this was one of the go-tos, right? This was one of the classics in VBS or Sunday school, kind of dare to be a Daniel. That was kind of the, the, the mantra as kids. And so one of the most famous passages, stories in all of Scripture. And I think, man, in this chapter especially, there's lots of things from Daniel's life that we want to emulate as modern-day uh, Christ followers. But ultimately, uh, as we're going to see towards the end of our time together today, Daniel points us to another who is coming, who is greater than himself. And that ultimately is the main point of Daniel chapter 6. Now, if you missed uh, the last few weeks or the first part of this sermon series, here's your recap. Daniel, three of his best friends, they are godly teenagers. Scholars think 15, 16, maybe 17. They're living in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and Babylon invades, led by the great king Nebuchadnezzar, they absolutely sack the city. They take all these prisoners of war back to Babylon, including Daniel and his three godly teenage friends. And basically, the whole story is them choosing whether to live like believers or Babylonians. Right, am I going to live like a believer or am I going to live like a Babylonian? And I think that's precisely the crossroads that we find ourselves at as modern-day Christians in our own version of a Babylonian culture? Are we gonna live as believers or Babylonians? Are you more like culture or are you more like Christ? I think that's probably a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. Now most Christians in our day, I've found, tend to either lean into one of two camps. So you have a group of Christians who their tendency is to either assimilate to culture, into culture, or another group that isolate from culture. So you have assimilators and you have isolators, right? So you have the believers who are basically indistinguishable from the culture, and these are, these are folks, maybe, maybe you know some of these people, maybe you would have to be honest and say you're in this camp, and, and kind of the attitude is, let, let me just see which way the cultural wind is blowing on whatever issue it is, on gender or sexuality or marriage or how I spend my finances or uh, how I view my career, whatever, what, how does culture view those things and I'm just gonna follow that pathway. I'm gonna follow uh, the path of least resistance. Kind of chameleons, right? Just kind of go with whatever everybody else is doing. And so they just kind of adopt uh, the, the prevalent lifestyle of the culture, the prevalent uh, value system of the culture around them. That's, that's one type of Christian. One temptation is to assimilate into culture. And then you have another group that I would call the isolationist. And these are the folks that probably wouldn't articulate this out loud, but this is kind of how they live their lives. Hey, culture out there is really evil, and all those sinners out there are really dirty, and so we're just going to kind of retreat into a Christian bubble, and we're only going to ha hang out with other Christian isolationists, and we're only going to listen to Christian music and read Christian books and watch Christian movies, and we're just going to kind of create this really socially awkward, weird Christian subculture that allows us to stay unstained from all the dirty sinners out there in the world. 
Right, so those are kind of the two camps that, that you see a lot in our culture. Now, this is anecdotal. I don't, I don't have the stats to back this up or the research to back it up. This is just observation. My observation is that in our culture today, most younger Christians, so I would say probably like my age and younger, so Gen X and younger, tend to fall into the first camp. So the desire there is, is, is kind of to lean into assimilation to the culture. There's just kind of a strong desire to be accepted, and so the temptation is, hey, let's just go along to get along, Let's just adopt the cultural talking points and beliefs, even if they clearly run against everything God has taught and the church has believed for thousands of years. Let's just go with the flow. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. And that seems to be kind of the primary temptation for younger generations. In my experience, the older generation, so like my, my parents, the boomers, my, my, my uh, grandparents, the, the great generation, they seem to, to be tempted to fall into that, that other camp, which is isolationism. Right, my grandparents' generation, trickling down to my parents' generation, the boomers, they were the ones who launched the, the mega church movement in the late 50s, the 1960s and 70s. So you can go back and study your church history, the whole, the whole church revolution and the church growth movement of the 60s and 70s, that generation launched that whole movement. Now what was the, what was the whole idea behind mega churches? And I'm not, I'm not here to like tear down or, or, or build up that model, but I'm just saying, what was the whole idea behind it? The whole idea is, hey, let's build these monstrosities for campuses, and man, we'll have our own basketball gyms so that we don't have to go down to the YMCA and get sweaty with those dirty centers that play basketball down there, and we'll build a whole bunch of soccer fields here so our kids don't have to play soccer with all these centers over here and their kids over there, and we'll have water aerobic classes here so we don't have to go down to the gym and have water aerobic classes with centers. Maybe we'll even build our own school here so we don't even have to you know, cross paths with any of the centers out there. We're just gonna have everything on campus so we never have to leave campus. We're just gonna create our own little odd subculture within the culture. And so you have the assimilators, it tends to be the, not exclusively, but tends to be the younger generations. Then you have the isolationists, it tends to be the older generations. And so I think a good question for all of us to ask this morning of ourselves is, which of those camps do I tend to lean towards? Do I tend to lean towards the assimilation camp? Do I tend to lean towards the isolation camp? Because here's the deal, guys. Neither is helpful. Neither is helpful. Neither is godly. Neither is gospel-centered, right? Because the message of the New Testament is clear. We must be in the culture, working for the good of those around us, working for the good of the cities that we live in, while living out the ethics of another kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Salt and light. Different but delightful. Strange but powerful. And the book of Daniel highlights for this, oh, this for us over and over again empathetically, right? Emphatically. Chapter 6 presents for us uh, in three movements. So if you think of chapter 6, it kind of comes to us in three sections. This will be on the screens for you. Verses 1 through 9, we're going to see a trap is set. Verses 8, 10 through 18, we're going to see a ferociously godly response by Daniel. And then verses 19 through 28, we're going to see a miraculous de delivery. Now, let me go ahead and give you the big idea up front. We're going to hit a lot of bullet points today, but this is the big idea. So if, even if you don't remember any of the bullet points, if you remember this, you got the main point. It's on the screens for you. Believer, we've got to learn to walk faithfully even when the cost is great. That's the big idea of the whole thing this morning. Now, what I'm going to do now is we're just going to walk through Daniel chapter 6. There are tons of incredible application points, and I'm just gonna hit you with a bunch of bullet points, right? And so I'm gonna try to go fast, you listen fast, you write fast if you're a, a note taker, it's gonna be good. Uh, but before we dive in, let's pause for a moment and just ask God to be with us and to guide our minds and our hearts as we dive into his word. Let's pray, would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we come to you. Many of us have had great weeks. Others of us have had really tough weeks. We've had to wrestle with difficult things, God. And so we come in here, some of us are happy, some of us are joyful, we come in, others of us come in here, and our hearts are, are broken. We're worried and we're stressed out about all kinds of things, God. And you know about all those things in our hearts. So God, would you, would you help us to give those things over to you? Just for the next 30 minutes or so, Father, would you clear our minds of all the obstacles and different things that are going on so that we could hear from you? God, we, we need to hear a word from you. We don't need to hear any self-help guidelines about how to live a better life. These folks certainly don't need to hear my opinions, God, so would you, would you hide my inadequacies behind your son Jesus this morning? Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here. Would you be present? Would you illuminate these words that were inspired by you all these years ago? Would you apply them to our lives in a meaningful way? And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, movement number one, a trap is set. Now remember, if you were here last week, Babylon has just been overthrown by the Persian Empire, right? It's quite a dramatic story. You can go back, read Daniel 5 if you, if you missed last week or listen to the message online. And so now we have a king named Darius who's the ruler of Babylon under the Persian Empire. Now you need to know this. Scholars are divided about who this Darius character is. So some scholars, about half the scholars I read, would say Darius was just a throne name for Cyrus the Great, so kind of the same guy. Uh, the other half of the scholars kind of believe that Darius was probably the Persian military ruler who overthrew Babylon. And so Cyrus kind of gave him kingship of the city for a short period of time, maybe a year or two. We're not really sure. I kind of lean towards the, the second interpretation of who Darius was. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. He's the dude who's ruling the, the city of Babylon now for the Persian Empire. Verse 1, starting in verse 6, this will be on the screens for you if you don't have the word. It says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So you might have the same question I had when I started reading Daniel. What's a satrap? All right, so think of this. Uh, the Persian Empire is a massive empire. Like, it's hard for us to even fathom how, how big, how large this kingdom was. They also, as you know, they didn't have emails, they didn't have text messages, they didn't, they didn't have cell phones, so they, they really had to create a lot of different governors for this massive empire to be ruled appropriately. So you kind of think of satraps as state governors, right? So in the United States, we have 50 state governors. The Persian Empire is so large, they need 120 state governors, right? So that, that's kind of, kind of how we should think about it. To be throughout the whole kingdom, verse 2, and over them, three high officials. So these are like three vice presidents, right? We got one. They needed three vice presidents, of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel now is one of the most powerful guys, even in the Persian Empire, which is pretty phenomenal, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished. Kind of mark that in your Bibles because we'll come back to that. That's an important uh, point. Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over, that's Daniel, over the whole kingdom. So the first thing I think we need to see here is Daniel's a spirit-filled man, right? This guy, he's walking so closely with the Lord that he just kind of exudes the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever been around a believer, a brother or sister, who's just Holy Spirit-filled, man? You're just around them, 
And, and, and not in a weird way, like they quote a Bible verse every time you ask them a question, but just like you can tell, man, the, this person has spent time with the Lord. I mean, they're, they're wise. Clearly, they have the, the, the spirit on them. This is, this is Daniel, right? Some have called this the, the, pract, the practice of pres, the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. In fact, a 17th century monk, a French monk known affectionately as Brother Lawrence, he, he wrote it beautifully. I'll put this on the screens for you. This is what he says. The most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is going to church, tithing, serving, going to Bible study. No, what's the, what's the most important spiritual practice in life? He says it's practicing the presence of God. What does that mean? That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment without limiting the conversation in any way. And so that's our first quick application bullet point, number one on the screens for you. Believer, we have to learn how to practice the presence of God in our lives. That's, that's Daniel, man. And I think that's something that we all ought to pursue as followers of Jesus is to walk so consistently, so deeply with the Lord that his spirit just kind of like leaks out of our pores. Like we open up our mouths and he just like seeps into our speech. He seasons everything that we say. This is Daniel. This is, serves as an example to us. He's practicing the presence of God. This is not a religious thing for an hour on Sunday morning. This is who he is. This is his DNA. It's all that he is. Now notice that King Darius intends to make Daniel the, kind of the president of the whole operation. Now, now why is that? Well, it tells us right there. Daniel became distinguished above all others. See, Daniel was apparently really good at his job. And I don't want you to miss this. He's not a pastor. He's not a vocational uh, missionary. He doesn't work for a 501c3. He's working a secular job for a secular government as a high-ranking government official. And he is apparently really darn good at his job. And I think even this is very instinctive for us. And I want to say this. Christians ought to be really, really good at what they do. So let, let me just say this. If you call yourself a Christian, don't be a slacker. All right? And if you're a slacker, please stop calling yourself a Christian. So I just want to say, if you're, if you're a school teacher, this is what I would say. Strive to be the very best school teacher in your school district. If you're a plumber, man, you should strive to be the most reliable, consistent plumber this city has ever known. If you're a heart surgeon, be such a great heart surgeon that heart surgeons from all over the country call for your advice. Now, why, why do I say that? Firstly, I say that because Colossians 3 tells us that as Christ followers, we don't ultimately work for man. We don't work for a boss. We ultimately work for who? We work for God. Right, so, so that's the first reason, and that ought to be enough for us. But here's the second thing that oftentimes happens. Now, this is a principle. This is not a promise, meaning God doesn't promise that this is going to happen, but it's a principle, so oftentimes it does happen. So here's what happens. Oftentimes when we excel in our work in the marketplace, we tend to get gospel platforms. Again, that's not a promise. That's a principle. Oftentimes when we excel in the workplace, oftentimes God sees fit to give us a platform for his glory. So let me just say, high school student, college student, nurse, small business owner, electrician, strive to be the very best version of whatever you do in the marketplace. Show up early, stay late, go above and beyond. Do the stuff that nobody else in your office will do. 
That leads right to our second application point on the screens for you, Christian. Strive for excellence in the marketplace. Daniel modeled this for us, and God used that attribute in his life to shine his glory for an entire kingdom. I've said this before. I think, man, if we really practice this as believers, I think it ought to be the situation that whenever a new business moved into Asheville, the very first question a new business owner should ask is, where are the Christians in this city? That ought to be the first question. When a new hotel opens up, a new business, a new restaurant, where are the Christians around here? Because, yeah, maybe they believe some kind of crazy weird stuff about a guy that died and rose again and all this kind of stuff, but we know they're going to be the most consistent, the most honest, the most hard workers in this entire city. we got to get some Christians up in here. That ought to be the attitude that we work with, the environment, the culture that we create in the cities where we live, work, and play. Verse 4, then the high officials... And the satraps, they're not happy about this, by the way, that Daniel's getting promoted to the very top uh, rung right under Darius. So they sought to find a, a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But listen to this. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So these guys are jealous. Daniel's being promoted. They don't like it. They want to tear him down. And I think there's another principle for us right there. Listen, church family, when God raises you up, others will try to tear you down. And many of you have already experienced that. When God raises you up, there are others who will try to tear you down. It's a story as old as time. Right When God gives you a dream, when he gives you a vision, when he gives you a purpose in his kingdom, when he gives you a platform, people will be there to try to tear that down in your life. I cannot tell you, in 16 years of ministry, I cannot tell you how many times I've known a high school student or a college student that gets fired up for Jesus and they feel called to do something great for the kingdom of God, whether that's global missions or being a youth pastor or worship minister or something like that, and they go home and they tell their parents, they tell their friends, they tell their boyfriend, they tell their girlfriend, and immediately people in their life try to tear that down. I can't tell you how many parents of college students, I've, and I've heard this story, right? They come home and they say, Mom, Dad, I'm so excited about following Jesus. I want to spend a year after I graduate going to Asia and sharing the gospel. And it's kind of like, you can't move to Asia. You can't move to Africa. I want my babies close, close by. I want my grandbabies close by. Like this whole thing is about you. Here's another common one. You can't go into ministry. You'll be poor. You can't be a youth pastor. You'll be as if that is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to you. And so let me just tell you, when you take a step towards Jesus, just go ahead and count on it. Someone will be there to try to tear you down. Now, just a word of pastoral advice. Ignore the haters and follow Jesus anyway. I know you love your parents. I know you love your grandparents. You probably love your boyfriend and girlfriend. If they're functioning as an obstacle to what God is calling you to, you need to move on, right? You ignore the haters and you move on. You follow Jesus anyway. And it says they couldn't find any fault with Daniel except, I love this, with his faith. Meaning that he was so well respected, so honest, so trustworthy, like there were no skeletons in his closet. Now does that mean Daniel was perfect or sinless? Absolutely not, all right? He was, he was a man just like us. What this means is, you kind of think of biblical terminology, he was a man above reproach. It just means his word was his word. He wasn't a gossip. 
He wasn't stingy with his time, talent, or resources. He was a godly man. And the only thing they could find to get him in trouble was his faith. So the next bullet point application for us this morning on the screens for you is, listen, church family, our faith should be our only fault. If people dislike you, it shouldn't be because you're lazy, unreliable, or a jerk. Right? If, people, if people don't like you because you're lazy or a jerk, that is not called being persecuted for the faith. That's called stop being a schmuck and a terrible human being. Stop being a terrible person. And let me say this. You need to hear this. Listen, the gospel is offensive enough on its own. We don't need to add extra barriers to people finding and following Jesus. It's offensive enough on its own. So here's what happens next in the text. We don't have time to read all of it. But the jealous uh, co-workers, they, they drink the haterade. They hatch a plot. They want to bring Daniel down. Right? So they go to the king, and, and they flatter him. All right, so they're flattering King Darius. They're like, hey, king, man, we all got together, and we just decided we want to come here and tell you how awesome you are. I mean, you're just such an incredible king. We just want you to know how much we appreciate you and how you provide for everybody in the kingdom so well. And so we just thought it was a good idea that Man, what if you issued a decree that for 30 days, just 30 days, nobody could pray to any other God except for you? And that way, everybody would see just how awesome you are as a provider, as a king. Everybody would realize, finally, how incredible you are as a king. And anyone, anyone, anybody that violates this law, over the course of the next month, you should give them the capital punishment. You should execute them. Now, King Darius, we know from the previous chapter, is 62 years old, maybe 63 by this point. He should have known better. This is, this is not a 17-year-old kid. This is a seasoned adult. He should have sniffed this plot out from the very beginning, but that's what flattery does to us, doesn't it? Doesn't flattery kind of blind us to the reality because it massages our ego? And that's the difference between encouragement and flattery, right? Encouragement is building truth into someone else for their good. So if you encourage, encouragement looks like this. Hey, man, uh, I saw you the other day on lunch break sitting with the, the new kid who's a reject and you left the cool kid's table to sit with him and I just wanna affirm that I see the life of Jesus in you, man. That was bold. That was courageous. I wanna encourage you, keep following hard after Jesus. Yes, that's, that, that's gonna cost you, but I see that in you. I just wanna encourage that spirit in you. That, that's encouragement. That's lifting someone up for their benefit. Flattery is I'm trying to get something out of you, so I'm gonna lie to you by buttering you up so it benefits me, right? So encouragement is good, it's godly. Flattery is sinful. And so King Darius is being flattered. He's blind to it because like most people, he likes to have his, his ego massage. And so we kind of picture King Darius, he's like, I am kind of awesome now that you mention it, you know? Yeah, I am, I am providing for everybody in the kingdom. And yeah, maybe it's not a bad idea if everybody finally appreciated me for all that I do around here. So yeah, let's go ahead and put this edict in and then maybe everybody will appreciate me the way that they should. All right, so now we're moving to the, the second movement in the chapter, the ferociously godly response in verse 10 says this, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, I love that. It would have been really easy for Daniel to compromise here, right? It's just 30 days after all. It would have been really easy to say, you know what? God would probably want me to have a break anyway. You know, he probably would want me to rest anyway. Maybe, maybe, I'll, just, uh, maybe I'll just close my eyes and pray in the shower so nobody will see me. 
Maybe I'll just pray uh, in my bed at night when I turn the lights off and, 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 and God will know that I'm praying to him, but nobody else will know and I can keep my life. I won't have to be executed. And I think we could hardly blame Daniel had he chosen one of those pathways. But see, here's the thing. Daniel had developed godly instincts for years and years. He's in his 80s now. And compromise simply was not an option for Daniel. Now, this is a small detail. I don't want you to miss it. Uh, when Daniel kneels to pray, it says he prayed towards where? Towards Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because if you remember your history, kind of the first two or three chapters of the book, Jerusalem is lying in ruins at this point in time. Remember, Babylon invades, they destroy the city, it's lying in rubble. But Daniel knows God's promises from the prophets to restore Jerusalem to the people of God. And so this is what's happening. Every time Daniel kneels down on his knees and he prays towards Jerusalem, he was in essence saying this, God, I know things look bleak. The city, the city of God's people is in rubble. The situation seems hopeless. But God, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know this story isn't over yet. And so I'm choosing to trust in your promises even when I can't see a way forward. And I think that's a lesson for us there on the screens for you. Believer, remember God's promises when life looks bleak. And I promise you, there's somebody here in the room watching online that needs to hear that right now this morning. And God is saying to you through the power of his spirit, through Daniel chapter six, don't throw in the towel right now. Yeah, things look desperate. Things look bleak. Don't give up, oh God. Like when you feel defeated, claim the promises of God. We go back to the scriptures. I'm not forgotten. I'm not forsaken. I'm a chosen, beloved son or daughter of the king of this universe. When you feel wrecked by guilt and shame, we go back to the promises in the Psalms. He has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. And he has promised to wash me as white as snow through the blood of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We cling to the promises of God. We kneel down and we pray facing the rubble of Jerusalem knowing that God is faithful to his promises. Now here's, an, here's another thing just as an aside that our culture communicates to us either implicitly or explicitly. Here, see, see if this sounds familiar to you. Hey, hey, Christian, you can believe whatever you want. We're not trying to take away your belief system. You can, you can go to church. You can go to youth group on Wednesday night. You can go to Bible studies. You can read your Bible. You can practice generosity. You can go on mission trips abroad. You can do all of that. Just do it privately. Just keep it on the hush-hush because religion is private. Faith is private. That's the message of our culture. But see, here's the deal. In God's economy, on the screens for you, we need, we need to internalize this. Faith in Jesus is personal, guys, but it is never private. It was never intended to be private. Listen, y'all, there's no such thing as a covert Christian. If you've been living in the same neighborhood for five years and your neighbors don't know that you love and follow Jesus, you're doing something wrong. If you've been going to school with the same classmates for a year, working with the same coworkers for multiple years, and they don't know that you love and follow Jesus, you're not doing this Christian thing right. It's Charles Spurgeon who said, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. There is no such thing as a covert Christian. Faith in Jesus is personal. It is never 
private. Now listen, I'm not advocating that you should be obnoxious. Don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that you should go grab a 30-pound King James-only Bible, and as soon as anybody says anything about uh, an ungodly world, you just kind of slap them over the head with your King James Bible. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you should be weird and quote a Bible verse every time someone asks you a question. Hey, Bill, pass the potatoes. If the Lord wills, let me pray about it, see how the Spirit moves. Hey, Susie, could you help me move this weekend? I don't know, I just kind of get a sense that the Lord is moving me into a season of rest and respite. And my favorite, I don't have a peace about it. I don't have a peace about it, brother. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have a peace the night before the crucifixion in the garden when he's sweating drops of blood. This whole idea that Christians should have a peace about something before we do something is nonsense. Completely unbiblical. In fact, sometimes you probably should be peaceful about what, it, what God is asking you to do. Listen, our faith is personal, yes, but it should never, ever be private. Daniel's not hiding his faith, even when the cost is great. Why? Because he made a decision as a young man, hey, three times a day. Doesn't matter what the cost is. I'm getting down on my knees, I'm gonna face Jerusalem, and I'm praying to my Father in heaven. Now, if you know the story, you know what comes next. The haters show up. They know they're gonna find him at eight, 12, and five, or whatever, praying, and so they climb up on his roof, and back then, the windows were up pretty high, so they wouldn't have just accidentally seen him. They had to make an effort to see him, so they kind of climb up on a ladder or on a high roof or something, they look down into Daniel's uh, window, and they see him praying. And what do they do? They immediately rat him out, they run to the king, and they go, hey, king, you know, it really breaks our heart, man, to tell you this, but your boy Daniel, Man, we saw him praying to God, his God, not to you. We got a bunch of witnesses here. We all saw it, and we're really kind of really torn up about it, but you know Persian law cannot be revoked. And you can look that up historically. That's, that's absolutely true. Persian law could not be revoked. They had trapped Darius, and he realized it. It was too late. He's trapped and knows it. Verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Now, we, we know from extra-biblical historical accounts that this was not uncommon in the Persian Empire to keep uh, a pit of lions because the kings enjoyed hunting uh, lions as a royal sport. So they would kind of trap these lions, they'd keep them in a pit, and then the kings would go hunt them, and it was kind of a, kind of a sport. Historians tell us that these uh, lion's dens typically had two entrances, so you had a, a lower entrance with a ramp where they would bring the lions into the den, and then you would have an opening at the top, and that's where they would throw the food in to feed the lions or people in to execute them in a horrific way. The text continues, then the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Now that's kind of a surprising statement from a pagan Persian king, isn't it? And I think what had happened here is Darius had become fond of Daniel. I think they're, I think they're friends. I think there's genuine care and concern here. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, a story in the Gospels, it probably should, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now, it's been said that the only person who likely slept in the kingdom that night was Daniel. <laughs> his enemies are up partying. They're like, man, we finally got rid of this cat. 
King Darius was up worried sick because he thought his friend was about to die and he was responsible because he got suckered into it by being, uh, by flattery. The lions couldn't sleep, right, because the angels got them in a headlock in the den. Daniel may have been the only guy that whole kingdom that got a good night's sleep that night. I just kind of picture Daniel like he's down there and he's kind of stretching, it's getting late at night. And he's like, hey, angels, y'all got this? Y'all good? I'm going to go over here and get a little shut eye, right? I'm gonna drink my chamomile tea and, and just kind of go to sleep. And then, like, I've got, I've got this, I've got this sermon I gotta prep to, to give to the king tomorrow morning. And so I'm just gonna go get a little, a little sleep over here. Now, here, here's the third movement, the miraculous delivery. You already know this part of the story. Look at verse 19. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went uh, in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. He's like, it's almost like the picture is he's crying here. Like he, he's He's desperate to see if his friend Daniel made it. He is, he is so distressed and disturbed that he may have been responsible for Daniel's death. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, the, his voice echoed out of the lion's den, Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Not a scratch on the old prophet. Nary a cut. You just kind of picture Daniel, man. He's, he's kind of stretching. He's just waking up. He's like, man, who's got, who's, got, who's got some coffee? King, God delivered me. Why are you surprised? Like, I expected this to happen. I'm not surprised. And that brings us right to our last practical application point on the screens for you. Christian, we've got to learn how to kneel before God so we can stand before the lions of our time and culture. We have to learn how to kneel before God and really authentically love him, trust him, follow him, even when the cost is great so that we can stand before the lions of our culture. And here's the thing, church family, you have to prepare for your lion's den moment. Why? Because you don't know when it's coming, do you? You don't know if your lion's den moment is coming next week or five years from now or a decade from now. Daniel didn't know it was coming or when it was coming, but it didn't matter because he lived prepared. He was ready for the moment. And we have to develop godly instincts ahead of time. How do you do that? You say, man, how do you do that? You go deep in your walk with Jesus, friend. Develop spiritual disciplines. There, there's no magic dust to sprinkle on spiritual growth. It's the hard work of prayer and reading the word and living in Christian community and exercising your spiritual gifts in the body and outside the body. I love the way a uh, commentator uh, uh, put it this week. Daniel Aiken was actually my seminary president. This is the way that, that he writes it. He says, Daniel's walk with the Lord was not crisis oriented. Man, I love that. Because how many of us have the type of faith that's kind of like break glass in case of emergency faith? Like, we're not really praying, we're not really reading the word, we're not really living in community, we're not really practicing the spiritual disciplines until things tank in our life. And then we're all about it, man. We're up in church, and we're raising our hands, and we're reading the Bible, and we're praying. That is a break glass in case of emergency faith. That is not what Daniel had. His faith was not crisis-oriented. Uh, Aiken continues, it was a consistent walk with God that people saw daily. 
And when emergencies or crises presented themselves, Daniel was already prepared to meet them. His daily communion with God had so shaped his character that he was ready no matter what. The decision to go to the lion's den had been settled many years earlier. The cost had already been counted. To be untrue to his God was never an option. Friend, learn to kneel before God so you can stand before the lions of our time. Now, the rest of the chapter, we're, we're not gonna read it, but it's pretty graphic. It tells us that King Darius took all the conspiracy guys, all the conspirators, all the enemies of Daniel and their entire families and threw them in the den of lions and that the lions consumed them before they even hit the ground. Just in case you were thinking, well, maybe they didn't eat Daniel because they were, weren't hungry, they had already been fed, or maybe they were sickly lions, maybe they had a touch of COVID and they just weren't in the mood or something like that. No, they were, they were real lions, they were ferocious lions, they were hungry, they devoured all these people. God just performed a miracle. And from that, let me just say this to you. Don't, listen, church family, Christian, being persecuted, being ostracized or made fun of at school in the workplace, don't worry about the haters. Don't worry about the haters. Their sin will have a way of catching up to them. Your focus is simply to kind of finish up where we started with a big idea. Your only focus is to walk faithfully even when the cost is great. You don't need to worry about the lions of our culture. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time fretting on that. You don't need to worry about your enemies that make fun of you. You need to just be focused on walking faithfully with the God who can deliver you from the lion's mouth even when the cost is great. And I want to finish with this quote. I thought it was beautiful uh, by a man named Ernest Wadsworth. This is what he says. Let this be our prayer today. Pray for a faith that will not shrink when washed in the waters of affliction. Isn't that good? And pray for a faith that will not shrink when washed in the waters of affliction. Now, let me just encourage you, if you would, just bow your heads with me for a moment. We're gonna close in prayer in just a minute, then we're gonna sing. Here, here's what I want you to hear. The, the message from Daniel chapter six, don't hear this. The, Daniel, the message from chapter six is not, dare to be a Daniel. Leave here and just kind of self-will all these attributes into your life and be disciplined enough to do all these things in your life. That, that is not the primary message of this chapter. Here's the primary message of this chapter. Daniel serves as a signpost to us, pointing to someone beyond himself. In a way, Daniel is a foreshadowing of a greater Daniel who would come and who would also be thrown into a den of death, sealed by the Roman government to face his own set of lions, the lions of sin, death, and hell, who also walked out of that lion's den very much alive one morning. But here's the thing, church family, this greater Daniel, Jesus Christ, actually defeated death, and his kingdom will have no end. And he offers life and hope and freedom and forgiveness to anyone who would call on his name, Romans chapter 10. To anyone who would turn from their sin and believe in him, he promises them abundant life, everlasting life, now and in eternity. And so as we close, I want to close with the words from chapter, the end of chapter 6. These are written by King Darius, this pagan Persian king who watched the miracles of our God, the God of heaven. This is what he writes to close out the chapter. Darius writes this. For he, Daniel's God, your God, my God, he is the living God. Not one of, he is the living God. 
enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And this, my friend, is the God that we worship right now, today, in 2022. To God be the glory. Father, we come to you. We look to you. Our eyes are on you. Our hope is in no other. God, would you teach us to love you? Would you teach us to kneel before you so that we could stand before the lions and the obstacles of our time and our culture, God? Help us be faithful to you. Help us count the cost, even when the cost is great, to follow you, to serve you in this life, to be salt and light in a world that is dark and dying and is desperate for hope and redemption. We have that in you. Help us display that through the way that we live our lives. We love you. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church family, let's stand, let's worship.